Welcome to Podcastus, North American History Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Roof. Thank you for listening. This is Episode 2, Part 1 of a three-part series on the civil rights struggle in St. Augustine, Florida. Introduction St. Augustine, Florida, 1964 The scene of peaceful protesters will be etched in my memory forever. It literally made the hair on the back of my neck rise and sent chills down the length of my spine. The demonstrators, with small children in the lead, some holding hands, slowly emerged from the shadows of the night, marching silently, two abreast in perfect step. As they made their way out of the darkness, flanked by heavily armed and helmeted policemen, they moved in a slow, steady march towards the muffled sounds of screaming clansmen. Their eyes opened wide, darting to and fro were filled with fear. From the distant park, the faint sounds of the white mob rose and fell in cadence with the soft sounds of marching feet, giving grounds for the fear I saw in the children's eyes. But on they came. They reminded me of a stream of bombers, headed into a mouse from a flak, a scene I had observed many times during the war. That's from Dan Warren's book, If It Takes All Summer. This episode focuses on the civil rights struggle in the United States, and more specifically, in St. Augustine, Florida in the 1960s. I realize this episode may come across as being overly tough on the white residents of the South. I'm not judging today's Southerners or St. Augustinians for events that happened over 50 years ago. No one should be judged for what previous generations did. And I do understand that there were white Southerners who disagreed with segregation. But very few did anything about it. And the ones who did were treated as traitors. Victims of a system that condoned violence to maintain the status quo of racial separation. I also understand that the North wasn't an innocent bystander in all this. The majority of Northern whites, including their elected representatives, remained silent throughout this era. There's some hard truths that have to be accepted if we're going to appreciate how monumental the civil rights struggle was. We're quick to talk about how our military veterans have defended our freedoms against enemies abroad, as we should be. We tend to forget or ignore those who fought and sometimes died for freedom within our own borders during the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. These people weren't fighting against Nazis or any other foreign enemy. They were fighting against their own government and police, their neighbors and terrorist organizations like the Ku Klux Klan. Some were military veterans. Medgar Evers had survived the Normandy campaign in World War II, only to be assassinated in his own driveway because he dared fight for the right to vote, 20 years after he returned home from fighting the Nazis. If you only take a couple things away from this episode, I hope they include a better understanding of how far we've come as a nation in the past 60 years, and how much was sacrificed to achieve that change. In a lot of ways, we've convinced ourselves that whites and blacks have been on even footing since the end of the Civil War, which isn't even remotely true. Slavery may have ended when the South was defeated in the Civil War, but the culture and society of the South, deeply rooted in white supremacy, didn't suddenly change because slavery was abolished. Instead, the evils of slavery were repackaged and used to form the backbone of the system that replaced it, segregation. Now, some might ask, why does it matter if we understand this dark part of our history? I think it matters because empathy comes from understanding what others have been through. The descendants of the people who survived over 250 years of slavery, and then 100 years of violent segregation, deserve to have their story told truthfully. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we've been shaped by this shared history. How we view each other based on the color of our skin, the failures of the criminal justice system, the inequalities that exist in healthcare, education, housing, and employment 
have all been shaped by segregation and slavery. Too many of us view culture and heritage as some sort of all-or-nothing proposition, as if discussing the sins of past generations are going to cause them to come back and haunt us. There's no reason we can't celebrate the positive aspects of Southern and American culture, things like the music, language, food, and literature, while openly rejecting the white supremacy that left tens of millions of our citizens behind. So in the end, if I seem harsh, so be it. We've avoided these difficult conversations surrounding race for too long, and there's already enough material out there that makes excuses and pretends this was just another time, or that white America didn't know any better. There's a severe shortage of content that celebrates the people who risked everything, and in some cases gave their lives in the fight for freedom. Thanks for listening. Five months ago, we took a family vacation, an old-fashioned road trip. We headed south from Nova Scotia to Florida. And after a lot of driving, we made it to St. Augustine, a place I knew little about. The Spanish arrived there in 1565, and I figured I'd come up with a podcast episode centered around these armor-wearing explorers, but it didn't work out that way. About 10 minutes after we parked the car in the Lincolnville section of town, I noticed a historical marker on the corner celebrating a local hero of the civil rights movement, and I jumped 400 years from the arrival of the Spanish to the 1960s. I'd looked up the Lincolnville section before we started our trip, and I knew it was settled by freed slaves after the Civil War, but other than that I knew little of the neighborhood, or the city's past. That night I looked up the person mentioned on the historical marker, and entered the world of St. Augustine in the 1960s. I felt the hair on the back of my neck rise, as I read about Ku Klux Klan night riders, terrorizing the residents of the neighborhood we were staying in. I'm 42, but only 14 years before I was born, the streets I'd walked that day with my wife and daughters had been the scene of bombings, shootings, and beatings. But it wasn't the violence committed by cowards that fascinated me. The violence was an attempt to stop a growing civil rights movement. This freedom movement is what I wanted to learn about. I started working on the podcast on and off as soon as I got home from vacation. There's a ton of material available online, largely thanks to Flagler College in St. Augustine, who's collected an incredible amount of material and made it available to the public. I'll put the links up on our website, podcastis.com. That's podcastis.com. I watched interviews read old newspaper articles, started a couple books, the usual stuff. But as hard as I tried to put a cohesive story together, I kept failing. My brain couldn't make sense of what happened in St. Augustine in the 1960s. It felt like I was trying to understand some parallel universe, one with a different set of rules I didn't know. Normally we can predict what's going to happen next in our day-to-day activities. And if you tell someone about your day, you don't spend 20 minutes explaining how a server took your lunch order and served you food because that's what's supposed to happen. But if the server called the police when you ordered, and the cops showed up, and shocked you with an electric cattle prod and dragged you off to jail, there's some explanation required. Otherwise, your story doesn't make any sense. And that's what kept happening as I tried to tell this story. I'd get to something like school integration. A black family enrolled their child in a previously all-white school. And the reaction? Their home was firebombed, and the white community remained silent. African Americans protested segregation by jumping in a swimming pool at a motel. And the reaction? Don't pass it on them. Arrest them. And put a six-foot alligator in the pool the next day to prevent it from happening again. And again, the white community remained silent. And to top off the insanity, this was all being done in front of the national and international news media, who'd flocked to St. Augustine after Martin Luther King arrived in the city in 1964. Now, you'd think that the presence of news cameras would lead to some self-reflection or at the very least self-preservation. St. Augustine's economy was and still is largely based on tourism, 
and they were preparing for their 400th anniversary celebration. But if instead of demanding an end to the violence, members of the community physically attacked the reporters and smashed their cameras, and the police stood by and watched. A 1964 editorial published in the local paper began with the following. For nearly a month now, our city has been plagued by nighttime demonstrations that have incited normally peaceful citizens to riot or near riot. Now, I couldn't understand how seeing black people walk peacefully down the street singing hymns and freedom songs could cause normally peaceful citizens to riot. And by riot, we're talking about attacking marchers with crowbars and baseball bats and shooting into their houses. Clearly, I was missing something. Part of the problem was that I was viewing these events through my 2020 eyes and applying my 2020 values to the past. But that didn't explain everything. What I was missing was an understanding of what segregation really was. What do you think of when you hear segregation? Whites-only drinking fountains in the 1950s, or something along those lines? I knew that life for African Americans wasn't great in the South, or for the, in the North for that matter, after the Civil War. I mean, I knew about the era of lynchings and mass murders like Tulsa, where white citizens up murdered upwards of 300 African Americans and burned their entire neighborhood to the ground. I knew about Jim Crow laws and the Freedom Riders and Bull Connor, but I'd never put it all together. They'd always been in a way separate incidents, when in reality every lynching, assassination, and beating was committed collectively by a culture willing to use violence to maintain the status quo of racial separation. In some ways I think it's human nature to look at bad things as one-offs, separate incidents. On an individual level, it's, Jim's not a bad guy, most of the time everything's fine, he just likes to be in control of his wife and kids. You know, when they challenge his authority, he beats them. And he screams and he terrorizes them. Now at what point does Jim transform from a decent guy who's made some mistakes into a monster who's ruining the lives of everyone around him? And if you want to take this a step further, what if you have an entire town full of Jims? Call it Jim Town. And there's no accountability. What if the police, the teachers, the religious leaders, the judges, and the politicians are all like Jim? and no one's ever held accountable within the town. Does it mean there's no problem with Jimtown's culture? And what if outside pressure eventually does lead to change, but everyone from the town starts telling a version of the past where they were loving fathers, whose families were doing fine until these outsiders got involved? Do we accept this version of the past? And what about the victims? Do we take Jim's side and tell his wife and kids they need to get over all the abuse and psychological terror? Brush it off and say it was a long time ago? At a certain point, you have to accept that you're dealing with a societal problem, not just a series of separate incidents. We can explore how society got to this point, but whatever the reasons are, we wouldn't excuse the behavior or blame the victims for their plight. And we certainly wouldn't put up statues celebrating the brave stand that Jimtown took against outside child services and the police department who ended the violence. But in reality, we've come to accept a lot of stories like this. False histories like the lost cause myth, the claim the Civil War wasn't about slavery at all are still making the rounds, especially on social media. Groups like the Confederate Sons of America claim to defend Southern heritage and their ancestors' honor when they fly Confederate flags and celebrate Confederate leaders, or claim that slavery wasn't as widespread or nearly as terrible as people claim it was. But what they're really doing is spreading a damaging and backwards mindset to new generations. Claiming that slavery wasn't the reason the Civil War occurred is ludicrous outdone only by the idea that slavery wasn't that bad. These groups never seem to talk about the hundred years that followed the end of the Civil War, 
And I think the reason is that there's no easy way to explain away this hundred years of terrible violence. It can't be dismissed with the, that was a long time ago strategy, because the 1960s weren't that long ago. Joe Biden, who's running for president right now in 2020, was 21 years old in 1964. The people who've been running the U.S. for the past few decades grew up during this era. If you want to explain the violence that stretched from 1865 to 1965 and beyond, you basically have three choices. The first is denial. Pretend it didn't happen. The second is that for unknown reasons, a lot of individual white people in the South like to beat, murder, and deprive black people of their rights. And the rest of the people there, for some reason, didn't want to prosecute them for those crimes. And the third option, and in my opinion, the only one that makes any sense, is that the mindset, culture, and society that existed during the era of slavery didn't end when the South was defeated in the war. Now, we don't have an actual time machine to travel back to the days of slavery and witness the mindset that the average white American had regarding race. But culture is a kind of time machine. If you watch the videos of white mobs in the 1950s and 60s, or look at the horrific photos of public lynchings, you're witnessing people still operating on software largely written before the Civil War ended. Now, if you disagree with this statement, or find yourself squirming in your chair a bit, ask yourself the following series of questions. And I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty with these. But if you answer them honestly, it's tough to deny my previous claim. Number one, was white supremacy the norm during the era of slavery? Clearly, that's a yes. Did Southern society agree to and accept the end of slavery? Obviously, no. It took the death of hundreds of thousands to end slavery. And three, when did Southern society change? When were African Americans accepted as full citizens? And I'm not talking about touchy-feely, everybody-get-along stuff here. I'm talking when did things change enough that a white man who murdered an African American would actually face justice? When could black Americans all register to vote? And when could they eat in a restaurant, stay in a hotel, attend public universities, or enter any hospital if they needed medical care? Well, the vote, any semblance of justice, and the end of segregation didn't happen until the mid to late 1960s. And it wasn't voluntary. It was the direct result of federal intervention. Again, this series of questions isn't designed to make anyone feel guilty. It's meant to illustrate that you can't understand the civil rights movement without wrapping your head around just how incredible the challenges were. For the most part, I wasn't taught much about these hundred years either, at least not when it came to race. What I was taught was compartmentalized. Lynchings were one thing. Rosa Parks refusing to give up her bus seat was another. And everything seemed to be wrapped up with Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, which he delivered on August 28, 1963. But the civil rights movement was far from over when those powerful words were spoken. Three weeks after the speech, Dr. King was in Birmingham, a city on the cusp of open racial conflict. That Sunday, the Klan had carried out one of the most heinous attacks ever committed in the United States when it bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church. Addie Mae Collins, age 14, Cynthia Wesley, age 14, Carol Robertson, age 14, and Carol Denise McNair, age 11 were all killed in the blast, and 22 others were injured. The day after the bombing in the midst of growing tension and violence between black and white residents, police shot and killed 16-year-old Johnny Robinson, who'd been accused of throwing rocks at a car. The same day, a 16-year-old Eagle Scout pulled a pistol and shot and killed 13-year-old Virgil Ware. 
Virgil was riding on the handlebars of a bike driven by his brother when he was killed. The 16-year-old killer had no explanation for why he'd done what he did when questioned by police. He'd just done it. If the killer is still alive at the time of this recording, which I believe he is, he'd be 73 years old, the same age as our current president. On September 18th, Dr. King stood in front of the coffins of three of the young girls and delivered a eulogy that's difficult to get through 57 years later. It included the following sentence, quote, We must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, the philosophy which produced the murderers. I think that sentence is the Rosetta Stone of race relations, especially race relations in the South. If you want to understand why people were marching in 1964, and why they're still marching in 2020, spend a few minutes thinking about that sentence. We must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, the philosophy which produced the murderers. Segregation and white supremacy wasn't the result of a few racists like Bull Connor or George Wallace. It didn't just affect African Americans when they were thirsty. It was all-encompassing. It was a system, a way of life, and a philosophy. The bombing at 16th Street Baptist was no more a separate incident than the dozens of previous bombings that had earned Birmingham the nickname Bombingham. It was no more a separate incident than the mass killings in Tulsa in 1921, the lynching of 14-year-old Emmett Till in 1955 for allegedly whistling at a white woman, or the assassination of voting rights activist Herbert Lee, shot in the head by a white Mississippi state senator in front of 12 witnesses. The state senator never served a day in jail. We could go on for hours or days describing the thousands of lynchings, bombings, and beatings that took place in the hundred years that followed the Civil War. The people who carried out these attacks did so on behalf of a society that chose to implement and maintain a system of legally enforced white supremacy, and never held the criminals accountable. And those aren't my words. In 1890, Mississippi rewrote their state constitution. The era of Reconstruction had ended, and the federal government had made it clear they'd be taking a hands-off approach with regards to racial relations. Here's a few quotes from the delegates who gathered at the convention. Quote, We came here to exclude the Negro. Nothing short of this will answer. Salomon Calhoun. Quote, It is the manifest intention of this convention to secure to the state of Mississippi white supremacy. What are you here for? if not to maintain white supremacy. End quote. Delegate Will T. Martin. The years that followed the end of Reconstruction are what you have to examine if you want to see how segregation and Jim Crow came into being. Remember, these institutions didn't just happen. They were written into law and enshrined in state constitutions across the South. And don't be fooled into thinking these laws were just the way things were. These laws and the violence that enforced them were direct responses to the gains that had been made by freed slaves in the years that followed the end of the Civil War during the Reconstruction era. Eventually, I'd like to spend a lot more time on these years. But for now, we'll have to stick to the Cliff Notes version. When the Civil War ended, the South was in ruins. The federal government was faced with rebuilding and reintegrating their former enemies' infrastructure and citizens. But there was a bigger challenge, figuring out how four million recently freed slaves would fit into Southern society. It's often presented as if Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, and then bam, freedom. But what you had after the war was over 4 million former slaves who literally only had the clothes on their backs and were just trying to survive. They suffered from smallpox, hunger, 
homelessness, and massive trauma. They also faced violence from former Confederate soldiers in groups like the KKK, which had formed in 1865. Before the war had even ended, Frederick Douglass, who'd escaped slavery as a young man and gone on to become a master writer and orator, had already given his detailed instructions on what to do with African Americans after the end of slavery. Douglass is truly one of the most fascinating characters who's ever lived. If you're ever looking for an incredible book, check out David Blight's Pulitzer Prize winner titled Frederick Douglass. The audiobook is Perfection, narrated by Prentice Onayemi. In 1862, Douglas wrote the following regarding what should be done with the freed slaves. Quote, We answer those who are perpetually puzzling their brains with questions as to what shall be done with the Negro. Let him alone and mind your own business. If you see him plowing in the open field, leveling the forest, at work with the spade, a rake, a hoe, a pickaxe, or a bill, let him alone. He has a right to work. If you see him on his way to school, with spelling book, geography, and arithmetic in his hands, let him alone. Don't shut the door in his face, nor bolt your gates against him. He has a right to learn. Let him alone. Don't pass laws to degrade him. If he has a ballot in his hand, and is on his way to the ballot box to deposit his vote for the man whom he thinks will most justly and wisely administer the government, which has the power of life and death over him, as well as others, let him alone. His right of choice as much deserves respect and protection as your own. If you see him on his way to the church, exercising religious liberty in accordance with this or that religious persuasion, let him alone. Don't meddle with him, nor trouble yourselves with any questions as to what shall be done with him. End quote. This is one of those monumental points in history. Southerners had to choose whether they'd accept African Americans as citizens and leave them alone as Frederick Douglass pleaded, or do the exact opposite. And it's pretty clear what happened. The federal government also had choices to make, the most important being what lengths would they go to to protect the newly freed African Americans from groups like the newly formed Ku Klux Klan. The federal government responded to these challenges by creating Freedmen's Bureau, officially known as the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. Their job was immense and included providing medical care, clothing, educational opportunities, employment, land, and protection to African Americans and also to poor whites in the South. Reconstruction is controversial even today. Many Southerners viewed and still view Reconstruction as an occupation, where Northern opportunists, who Southerners called scallywags and carpetbaggers, came down and made their fortunes and took over political leadership in the South. And there's a lot of truth to that, but it's not the whole story. What enraged many Southerners most were the changes imposed on them around racial equality. By the end of 1866, the federal government had passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. These abolished slavery, made former slave citizens, and protected their right to vote. Southern state legislatures were forcibly dissolved, and new state constitutions written. Soon after the right to vote was protected by the passage of the 15th Amendment, African Americans became a powerful political force all across the South. They made up a huge percentage of the population, and if elections remained free and fair, they could elect their own leaders and push for better conditions. And that's what happened. Between the years of 1869 and 1900, 20 African Americans from the South were elected to the U.S. House, and two were elected senators, 
That's 22 federal representatives in 31 years. This is in addition to hundreds of local representatives. And at this time, they were all part of the Republican Party, which was still the party of Lincoln, the great emancipator, and was much more sympathetic to their cause. On the other side, you had Southern Democrats, who were the party of the former Confederates. They couldn't win in a fair electoral fight in many places because they were simply outnumbered. So throughout the entire era of Reconstruction, they used violence to suppress the black vote. They assassinated leaders, burned homes, and made it clear that anyone who pushed for black rights faced death. It worked. They began to win elections as African Americans began to see voting as too dangerous. And as the 1870s drew to a close, African American political power was dwindling. In 1877, Reconstruction ended as a part of a political deal to end the contested presidential election of 1876. This is when things go from not good to horrific for African Americans. It's almost as if Southern whites had read Frederick Douglass's recommendations and proceeded to do the exact opposite of leave them alone. They'd been the victims of terrible violence while the feds were supposedly protecting them. Now they faced a future with no protection. This is where the era of lynchings began. This is when state constitutions are rewritten, and Jim Crow and segregation laws are put on the books. And perhaps most damaging in the long run, this is when poll taxes and literacy tests are put in place to prevent almost all black Southerners from voting. I was also surprised to learn that this is where the term grandfathered in comes from. A lot of these poll tax and literacy tests had a loophole. If your grandfather was a registered voter, these laws didn't apply to you. Now, obviously, no freed slaves had a grandfather who was a voter. The effect of these new laws was dramatic and accomplished what violence alone couldn't. They virtually extinguished black voting in the South. In 1901, George Henry White of North Carolina stood to address the U.S. House of Representatives. He was the only African American left in Congress, and his term was over. He ended his speech with the following, quote, This, Mr. Chairman, is perhaps the Negro's temporary farewell to the American Congress. But let me say, Phoenix-like, he will rise up some day and come again. These parting words are on behalf of an outraged, heartbroken, bruised, and bleeding, but God-fearing people, faithful, industrious, loyal people, rising people, full of potential force. It would be over 70 years before another African-American from the South was elected to Congress. There'd been 20 elected in the 31 years that followed the end of the Civil War. In the 70 years that followed 1900, even though they made up huge majorities in many voting districts, there were zero. That's a fact worth remembering the next time you hear somebody talk about issues of inequality. For over 70 years in the South, African Americans worked, paid taxes, served in World War I and World War II, but had no one representing them at the federal, state, or local level. In fact, they had the opposite of representation. Politicians at all levels worked to pass laws that actively repressed them. Now, most of Reconstruction is viewed as a failure, but there were a couple bright spots. Voting as short-lived as it was, was one. And another was the establishment of black colleges, now referred to as historically black colleges and universities. Schools that include Morehouse, Spelman, and Florida Memorial University, which in 1963 was still in St. Augustine, Florida. Without the establishment of these institutions, it's hard to imagine where we'd be today. Many of the leaders of the 50s and 60s freedom movements graduated from these schools, including Dr. King, Medgar Evers, and Dr. Robert Haling, 
who led the local movement in St. Augustine. These schools, along with black churches and the NAACP founded in 1909, formed the backbone of resistance throughout the first 50 years of the 20th century. Segregation and Jim Crow laws continued to be sculpted into the early 20th century. States wrote new constitutions and passed laws that regulated every aspect of race relations, including where black Americans could live, eat, sleep, attend school, and who they could marry. In the end, they created what can be viewed as a nearly impenetrable granite monument, inscribed with the newly created laws governing life in the South. Segregation spread to the North, too. The Federal Civil Service was segregated, as was the military. I live in Nova Scotia now, and we had businesses here that were segregated. While the institution of slavery had existed, there had been no need to hide the violence that was integral to its survival. But after the ratification of the 13th Amendment, things had to change a bit. During slavery, violence was like a solid, out in the open. But after the war ended, it changed states to something more like a liquid, more fluid and harder to pin down. This granite monument of segregation and Jim Crow laws gave this violence a place to live. Everybody knew it was there. And anytime someone dared to chip away at the institution of segregation, the violence poured out and crushed them. The intensity and volume of the violence that took place between the 1880s and the 1960s is so overwhelming it's difficult to quantify. Type the word lynching into the New York Times search bar. Filter the stories to the years 1920 to 1930. Mentally prepare yourself to be horrified and then read a couple of the stories. And if you have the stomach for it, look at a few of the photographs of the public lynchings that took place in the early 20th century. Over 3,400 African-American men and women were killed in this manner in the years that followed the Civil War. It was part of the culture of the South, in some parts of the North too. Now, statistics make things easier to digest. But take a minute to think about what it would be like to be a black American in a small town in the 1930s, on the day after your white neighbors had lynched somebody from your community. The mutilated bodies were usually left up for everyone to see. I can't think of anything that would be more horrifying or intimidating. The African-American poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who happens to be from my hometown of Dayton, Ohio, wrote a chilling poem about a lynching titled The Haunted Oak that begins with the following. Pray why are you so bare, so bare, old bow of the old oak tree? And why when I go through the shade you throw, runs a shudder over me. My leaves were green as the best I trow, and sap ran free in my veins, but I saw in the moonlight, dim and weird, a guiltless victim's pains. I bent me down to hear his sigh, I shook with his gurgling moan, and I trembled sore when they rode away, and left him here alone. This was the type of violence that kept the system of segregation in place. Would you be willing to challenge your local or state government on issues of voting or civil rights if they'd been shown to be capable of something like this? And as if lynchings weren't enough, there was also mob violence. Events like the Tulsa Massacre of 1921, where upwards of 300 black residents were murdered in two days of wild violence. The entire black business district was burned to the ground. The North wasn't immune either. Springfield, Ohio, the town where I attended university, had two such events— one in 1904, which began with the lynching of a black man accused of killing a police officer, and another in 1906. Both ended with black neighborhoods and businesses being burned to the ground. White mobs attacked African Americans in over 30 cities across the United States in the summer of 1919 
in what became known as Red Summer. Now, among the reasons for this violence in 1919 was a backlash against the proud, uniform-wearing black veterans who were returning home from serving their country in World War I. A New Orleans newspaper editorial titled Nip It in the Bud made it clear what the goal of this violence was when it wrote, quote, This is the right time to show them what will and will not be permitted, and thus save them much trouble in the future. End quote. In 1909, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, was founded and began chipping away at the granite monument of segregation and the violence hidden inside it. Despite their best efforts, little changed in the four decades that followed. Now, I don't want to make it sound like there were no successful African Americans in this era, because despite the violence and discrimination, there were incredible success stories. Atlanta and Tulsa both had thriving black business communities with wealthy African Americans. And in towns across the South, African Americans figured out ways to take advantage of segregation, where white businesses wouldn't do business with African Americans. Insurance companies, black doctors, dentists. But on the whole, segregation severely limited opportunities. And it was very easy for banks to do things like pull loans, pull credit, or refuse credit if someone wanted to expand a business. For change to occur in a situation like the segregated South, you needed either outside federal pressure and enforcement of the law, or sweeping moral change in the white population. Politics and racism prevented federal involvement, and a Southern society deeply rooted in white supremacy and fanatically resistant to outsiders had no moral awakening. But the NAACP kept chipping, and historically black colleges across the South kept producing more and more skilled leaders. And even though the military remained segregated during World War II, the war exposed many young black men from the South to the non-segregated outside world. The ten years that followed the end of World War II is when all of this chipping began to cause cracks in our segregation monument. The military desegregated in 1948, but the first major crack opened up in 1954, when the Supreme Court struck down segregated schools and Brown v. Board of Education. This fissure was deep, and the white community's reaction was extreme. This is another one of those historical events that was always presented as a simple Brown v. Board of Education. Bam, schools are integrated. But this wasn't the case. In a lot of cities, elected leaders shut all the public schools down and issued vouchers for students to attend private schools, knowing that private schools wouldn't accept black students. There were places like Prince Edward County in Virginia that kept their schools closed for over five years. The white kids went to private schools, known as segregation academies, and the African-American students either went without education or had to move to another county to find a school. Now, when you think about the effects that this would have had on children, to not go to school for years, it's incomprehensible. I mean, we're in a pandemic right now and people are debating, you know, if, if our children are going to be scarred because they've missed months of school. And this doesn't even touch on the fact that these children knew that they weren't wanted in school. In fact, this was one of the main arguments made in the Brown decision. The ruling included the following, quote, To separate black children from others of similar age and qualifications solely based on their race generates a feeling of inferiority as to the status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely to ever be undone, end quote. The Brown decision sparks the creation of white citizens' councils. These were like country club clan groups, made up of the middle class, upper class, and elites of white society. They'd gather and figure out how they could prevent desegregation from occurring in schools, 
and across society in general. Their main goal was to prevent African Americans from organizing, and to punish anyone who did. And these groups weren't secret. People were proud members. Groups like the Klan depended on violence alone to intimidate, but citizens' councils used other nefarious methods to achieve their goals. They worked together to fire African Americans who were involved in the civil rights movement. They also targeted black businesses and homeowners by refusing to issue credit or by calling in mortgages. That's when the bank calls you out of the blue and gives you a couple days to pay off your mortgage. Looking back, the Brown decision was the beginning of the end for segregation, but finishing it off wouldn't be easy. Over the next ten years, a familiar battle sequence developed. A freedom movement would begin in a town, often triggered by a singular event, and demonstrations would follow. And this is where the Southern Playbook came in. Either a white mob or the police would break up the first demonstrations. If African Americans continued, the white violence began. Police used dogs, nightsticks, and electric cattle prods, and groups like the Klan committed beatings, bombings, and assassinations. Things escalated until either one side backed down or an agreement was reached. If both sides kept fighting, things got very scary for the non-violent African Americans in the town. On December 1st, 1955, one of those singular triggering events occurred when James Blake, a bus driver in Birmingham, put his bus in park and confronted Rosa Parks, a 42-year-old African-American seamstress. A white man wanted her seat. Blake demanded she get up and move to the back of the bus so the man could sit down. She refused and was arrested. What followed was the Birmingham bus strike. For 381 days, the city's African-American population refused to ride the city buses until they were desegregated. This required massive sacrifice and incredible unity in the black community. For over a year, as the lawsuit brought by the NAACP wound its way through the court system, not a single African-American rode the city buses. They were beaten and arrested as they walked. Their well-organized carpools were harassed and drivers pulled over for speeding. This is where Martin Luther King emerged as a leader and subsequently began to be targeted with constant violence and threats. His home, along with the home of fellow leader and friend Ralph Abernathy, was firebombed during the bus strike. Abernathy remained by King's side until the end, 13 years later, when he held his dying friend in his arms, outside their Memphis hotel room. The bus boycott ended only when the Supreme Court upheld a lower court's ruling that deemed segregated busing unconstitutional. And this is where white Southerners must have realized something was different. The playbook they'd relied on for so many years failed. The violence had failed. But the Supreme Court's ruling was the only reason the buses had been desegregated. There'd been no moral awakening and no change of heart. But the ruling shook the institution of segregation. And cracks appeared. And from these cracks poured uncontrolled, culturally sanctioned violence. When I was a kid, I saw a cat that had been hit by a car. Before it died, I stood on the side of the road and watched it go through what I later learned are known as death throes. Terrible, uncontrollable spasms. It was an awful thing to see. What followed the Supreme Court's ruling and the subsequent integration of the bus system in Birmingham was a sort of death throes of the institution of segregation. Spasms of horrific violence. Violence we can hardly imagine today. In less than two months' time, five black churches were bombed or burned in Birmingham. Snipers targeted African-American bus riders, shooting a pregnant woman in both legs. A shotgun blast tore through Dr. King's front door, and a young black woman was beaten by a group of white men on Christmas Eve after she exited the bus. And all of this was followed by the lynching of 24-year-old Willie Edwards, who was severely beaten and forced to jump to his death from a high bridge into a river at gunpoint. After the violence subsided, 
the Birmingham White Citizens Council sprung into action, and segregation laws were tightened around the city. Birmingham continued to live up to its nickname of Bombingham for years to come. Six Klansmen were arrested for some of this violence, but none of them or anyone else was ever convicted for any of the shootings, bombings, beatings, or the lynching. But the nonviolent freedom movements continued to spread across the South, and Dr. Martin Luther King's standing as a leader continued to grow. In early 1960, lunch counter sit-ins in Greensboro, North Carolina began, and proved to be an effective nonviolent protest strategy that became popular across the South. The sit-ins consisted of a few African Americans entering a diner or restaurant, sitting down, and ordering a hamburger and a Coke. And then they waited. For the white mob or for the police to arrest them. They didn't fight back. They sat peacefully, until they were arrested or driven out. The sit-in movement reached Nashville, Tennessee in February 1960. And this is where our story surrounding St. Augustine begins. Because among the many young African Americans who participated in the protests in Nashville, was a man named Robert Haling, who was in Nashville finishing up medical school at Meharry Medical College, training to be a dentist. Sometime during the spring of 1960, Robert Haling reached an agreement with Rosalie Gordon to take over the dental practice of her late husband, Dr. Rudolph Gordon in St. Augustine. But before he left Nashville, Dr. Haling would witness the power of one of the most well-organized and motivated group of students ever assembled in the United States. The leaders of the Nashville student movement became legends of the civil rights movement and included Diane Nash, future congressional representative John Lewis, Marion Barry, C.T. Vivian, James Bevel, and others. Dr. Haling would also see the dangers of becoming involved in such movements, because on April 19, 1960, the home of Z. Alexander Luby, the African-American lawyer who'd represented many of the protesters in court, was bombed. Luby and his wife were in the back bedroom, the only part of the house not destroyed and they survived without major injury. The blast was so intense it shattered over a hundred windows in Dr. Haling's dormitory, which was across the street. The day after the bombing, over 3,000 citizens of Nashville marched to City Hall to demand action from the mayor, Ben West. He was asked point-blank if the lunch counter should be desegregated. West said yes, and immediately began the years-long process of tearing down the institution of segregation in his town. This shows the necessity of leadership in these situations. There would be more violence in Nashville, but they were at least on a path forward. When he arrived in St. Augustine in 1960, Haling found a city still pretending that racial relations were good, which was standard operating procedure across the South. As long as protests weren't taking place, the white community was able to tell themselves and the outside world that everyone was happy. Henry Twine, an African-American postman and NAACP activist in St. Augustine, put it this way, quote, the whites, as usual, thought things were good, and this was before we made any demands. This is where the trouble begins in any interrace relations. The average black was happily, as it seems, whistling and going about his business. But the first time he asked for a piece of the pie, it is a different story. End quote. In part two of our story, the African Americans in St. Augustine ask for a piece of the pie. And the elected leaders of St. Augustine discover that their new dentist can do a lot more than fix teeth. In fact, he's the living embodiment of give me liberty or give me death. Thanks for listening.